From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. He seemed like a guy who'd easily recover from COVID-19. I mean, we're talking about a man that is the epitome of health. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He works out. He runs. For his 40th birthday, he walked slash ran 40 miles. But a painful path lay ahead for his family. She asked me if I could promise that daddy was going to come home. And that was probably the most difficult conversation I've ever had. The scariest point was thinking that my dad might die. Like, that was really, really scary. Today, a special from our health reporter as a team of doctors and nurses tries to save a life from the ravages of the novel coronavirus. It sort of boggles my mind how this virus picks and chooses people and who gets really sick and who is barely ill from it. It's just, I still, my mind, it boggles my mind. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, a special inside look at the fight against COVID-19. The patient, a 40-year-old man who by all accounts was the epitome of health. Jason Jahanian of Lone Tree, married with two kids, ages eight and four. He's someone who doesn't get sick very often, had only been in the hospital once 25 years ago for just a day to have his appendix taken out. That was when he was in high school. A super fit guy who runs half marathons, which underscores the sheer unpredictability of a virus that has triggered a global public health emergency. Well, for the past two months, CPR health reporter John Daly has followed the medical team fighting to save Jason's life. Not only did they face many unknowns when it comes to COVID-19, they were worried for their own health and safety. Early this spring, things were good for Jason Jahanian. He and his family went on a road trip to the Southwest, boating and visiting slot canyons. Stories about novel coronavirus cases in Colorado were popping up, but Jason saw no cause for alarm. He hadn't really been sick since a bout with the flu a decade ago, but things changed in late March. Well, it all started with Jason having chest pressure, chest pain. That's Jason's wife, Michelle, who's a nurse herself. Being a nurse. I kind of pushed off. He was anxious about a few things that week. And so I was just like, oh, it's just your nerves. No worries. And then within a day or so, he developed a cough that worsened. And at that point, we knew that it was probably COVID. There were fewer than 200 cases of COVID-19 reported in the state so far. It wasn't clear where he'd picked it up. I mean, it's It's everywhere. You can get it from walking by someone. You know, we have no idea. Michelle works in an infectious disease clinic, and she had the tools she needed to keep an eye on him, a stethoscope and an oximeter, which measures oxygen levels. His lungs progressively sounded worse. His oxygen levels were getting worse. Just walking to and from the bathroom, which is, I don't know, a whole 15 feet. He was getting winded. The chest pressure faded after a couple of days and the fever broke, but he couldn't shake the fatigue. It lasted more than a week. Then his oxygen levels plummeted. And so I had to take him to the ER, which was the hardest thing I've ever done, was to watch him walk through those doors and I could not go in. I had to trust that those doctors and nurses were taking over care 
and there was nothing I could do. At 2 a.m. on Thursday, April 2nd, Jason was admitted to the emergency department at Skyridge Medical Center in Lone Tree. He was one of more than 180 people reported hospitalized that day. I just thought, okay, they're going to give him some oxygen and release him within a day or two, is honestly how I felt. And then as the day progressed, he was still on nasal oxygen, so he was able to text me. But then Saturday morning, they called me and they had to put him on a vent. At that point, I knew how critical this was. And they relayed what his lungs, his x-rays looked like. They're worsening. Jason's condition came as a shock. I mean, we're talking about a man that is the epitome of health. He doesn't drink, doesn't smoke. He works out. He runs. For his 40th birthday, he walks slash ran 40 miles. Michelle couldn't get in to see Jason. They weren't allowing visitors for COVID-19 patients, and she couldn't talk to him anymore. He was sedated. Her sister was flying in for support, and Michelle knew her daughter would figure out something was wrong. My name is Keston, and um, I'm eight years old. She was very emotional, and she is very sensitive like her dad. And I expected for her to be emotional through the entire process, but it was surprising that she, I don't know, there was a strength in her that I've never seen. At first, I was super duper scared, like, what's going to happen to him? Like, what? But my mom and all my friends were convincing me and, like, hoping and hoping. She asked me if I could promise that Daddy was going to come home. And I had to tell her that I could not promise her that. And that was probably the most difficult conversation I've ever had. The scariest point was thinking that my dad might die. Like, that was really, really scary. In the hospital, Jason's chest x-rays kept getting worse. They told me they could not see the outline of his lungs. So that means basically they call it a whiteout. So normally when you take in a deep breath, your lungs in a scan look dark. And his were white. So they were not expanding to get the air into them. But there was nothing else they could do. Jason needed more intense medical care. They called and said that they thought that they were being proactive and thought they needed to transfer him to a higher acuity hospital. They called a cardiac surgeon on call, which was me that day. That's Dr. Jennifer Hanna at the Medical Center of Aurora. And asked if I think he would be a good candidate. So at that point, I look at his chart, look at his x-ray, sort of just do a quick look at everything that he's gone through at Sky Ridge, and we decide to have him transferred over to Aurora. 
Jason was loaded into an ambulance and immediately brought into the ICU, the intensive care unit. Patients in this part of the hospital are severely ill, many of them at that point with COVID-19. People assume that people with just poor immune systems like young children and the old were really the vulnerable patients. But Hannah says there's this whole group of people right in their 30s and 40s. Getting really, really deathly ill because their immune systems are so good. One theory is that in younger patients like Jason, the disease unleashes what doctors are calling a cytokine storm. They catch the virus and their immune system kicks into overdrive and attacks their organs. Really, this age group that thinks they're kind of invincible are very vulnerable. Hannah says the disease is scary. We just don't know much about it. Because research is still evolving. We didn't know what to do to treat it. And doctors have no idea how it'll act. And it often moves quickly, so they have a little time to respond. And it's really difficult seeing really kind of the youngest patients, like in the 30s and 40s, getting the most sick. Hannah and her colleagues thought Jason might need a special kind of therapy, ECMO. In the case of ECMO, or this type of ECMO, that stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation. We're just bypassing the lungs. It's a life support machine. But you're taking blood out of the heart into a machine that oxygenates that blood. It's for people with severe illness that prevents their lungs or heart from working properly. And takes it back to the rest of the body because his lungs weren't able to do that. And it allows their lungs to rest while they heal. Within an hour of entering the ICU, Jason is hooked up to the ECMO machine. It's been described as the most aggressive form of life support available. A last-ditch approach doctors will only try on some patients. It's a lot of tubing. He's, if you walk into a room, you'll see him hooked up to a ton of stuff. Hannah says at this point... When you paralyze them, they also have a monitor that's on their forehead that's making sure that they're sedated enough so that you're not just paralyzing them without sedation. He was also still on the ventilator and sedated. So there's medications running into the line in his neck. There's the tubing in his groins that's going to the ECMO circuit. There's the tubing coming out of his mouth going to the ventilator. And there's the blood pressure monitor that's in his wrist. We are hearing a special report from CPR health reporter John Daly, the inside story of COVID-19 patient Jason Jahanian. When we come back, what happened to Jason and the many unknowns doctors and nurses face in the fight to beat back the virus? This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Being member-supported carries a responsibility that we at Colorado Public Radio take seriously. I am humbled by the fact that people voluntarily give us money and puts a tremendous responsibility on our shoulders to give you back the best radio we can. It is an honor that people support this service and have done so for decades. I'm membership director Jason Moore. 
CPR is here because of members who invest in all that we do. Thank you for your generosity. Let's get back to the story now of Jason Jahanian, an otherwise healthy guy who was hit hard by COVID-19. CPR's health reporter John Daly followed the fight to save his life and the doctors and nurses who had a lot at stake in his treatment. For Dr. Hannah, caring for Jason came at a critical moment in her own life. For one thing, her husband and Jason have a lot in common. They're the same age, and they're both really fit guys. It was really scary. I actually kind of held a lot of that back from discussing with my husband. I think, you know, I still was trying to have some sense of separation and normalcy when I came home. And first child, I was still trying to enjoy some sense of that when I was coming home, too. I had just come back from maternity leave. So he was the first person I took care of, you know, in an operative fashion coming back from maternity leave. Her son, Brooks, was about eight weeks old when Hannah returned to work. She says as a frontline provider, she was worried about bringing the virus home. Not even just exposing my newborn, exposing my husband. So it's become a little strange, you know, as soon as you walk in the door, you want to hug your child. But the first thing I do is disinfect everything, take off my scrubs and take a shower. So it's kind of an interesting time to actually be away from home. I can break it At the hospital, the situation was stressful. She and the other doctors were cautiously optimistic about Jason's chances for survival, but it's never clear how a patient will respond to treatment. We have patients on for weeks before they either recover or don't. And our staff can become demoralized seeing these patients sort of sit there on ECBO for days on end without it seeming like anything's improving. And for Jason's wife, Michelle, the reality of his outlook was becoming all too clear. I knew. I knew what ECMO meant. I mean, that was our last saving chance. If this didn't work nothing was going to work. Chances of survival once going on ECMO is very poor. And I heard the doctor say dire straits. I I mean, I knew. I knew. Michelle says doctors considered giving him an experimental drug, and she agreed to try it. But the ICU doctor at that point in time called me and said he did not feel like it was a good idea to give it to him because one of the side effects could be, well, it brings down his immune system. So if he was to get any source of infection from any of the lines that he had, that he could go into sepsis. And then we have a whole nother issue to deal with. The doctors wanted to try other treatments too, but Michelle had to decide yes or no each time with Jason's life hanging in the balance. It made her incredibly anxious. She hit a low point. On Saturday night, I felt like I had to give like everything to God because I had so much anxiety. Like I just had to ask him to help me and guide me on this path and to make any available treatments that Jason needed available to me. And 
the next day would have been Easter. And that morning they called me and he was approved for the trial study to do the convalescent plasma. By Easter, Jason had been under sedation and on a ventilator for nine days on ECMO for nearly that long. That weekend, doctors decided to try the convalescent plasma as well as the experimental drug they'd considered earlier. While Michelle worried, doctors began to see signs of hope he might survive. Then, the day after Easter, a major turn. He just rocketed forwards. There was no coming back. His chest x-ray improved every day. His labs were improving every day. By that Wednesday, they were able to turn off his ECMO. And that Thursday, they turned off the vent. And then Jason started to regain consciousness for the first time in weeks. Nurse Amy Cooper says his family brought a collage of family pictures that hung from the wall. My whole goal that day when I took care of Jason was to just try to reorient him and to get him sort of comfortable with his surroundings because he was so confused. He had no idea what was going on. He was so sedated for so long and really not knowledgeable of what was going on with him or how sick he was or that he had transferred from Sky Ridge. Sometime during my recovery phase in the ICU, I must have seen this collage. So in my dreams, I went through multiple different scenarios of me on my deathbed reflecting on life and me heading towards the light or anything like that. No, nothing like that happened. But it was very much just time to reflect on what's what's special in life. Jason had made it. He remembers the moment when he started to realize what he'd been through. A strange doctor was there at his bedside, someone he didn't know. I mean, it was basically high fives, like, oh, my gosh, you made it. It's so great to see you. Fantastic. You beat this thing. And here I am mentally. Again, I've been out for two weeks. I have no idea. I have no context of what's going on. And I mentioned to him, oh, OK, yeah, I'll get through this. And this, this is a journey. We'll, we'll, we'll power through it. And he goes, no, no, you don't understand. He says, you, you made it through the tough part. He goes, you made it. He says, it's so great to see you. I mean, he practically had uh, tears in his eyes. I mean, it was pretty fantastic. That doctor was Joe Forrester. He's a pulmonologist. We had had a conversation telling him that, you know, he's going to make it through this. He's already done all the hard work and he will make it home. And I think before that, he really didn't see an end in sight. Man, I was... I was more on that side than this side. I, I beat the odds. I, I was completely overwhelmed. I was telling my friends and neighbors, I was like, you know, the only thing I want is for Jason to just say happy birthday on my birthday. Like, that's it. And, you know, it started getting closer and closer. And I was like, oh, my goodness. I honestly didn't feel like we would be reaching this point. So he woke up on the 16th. My wife's birthday was April 18th, so uh, <laughs> uh, sorry, uh, so, so 
so she got her wish. <laughs> I was able to tell her happy birthday over over FaceTime. <laughs> and it was the best thing I have ever heard. Amy Cooper, who was there as he woke up, had been an ICU nurse for 10 years. But even so, managing patients who are fighting to survive COVID-19 had been tough. We've had multiple patients on ECMO, five and six cases a day, you know, of these patients that are that ill requiring that type of oxygenation. And a lot of times they die or they just kind of stalemate and they don't make any progress. And they are on that therapy for an extremely long period of time without making any progress. Several die, several don't make progress, but very few have been success stories. Jason had lost around 30 pounds in two and a half weeks. He couldn't unlock his smartphone because the facial recognition software didn't recognize him. This was a huge moment for his medical team. I talked to another registered nurse, Caroline Melton, who worked with him as he recovered and guessed he had a lot of people helping. How many people would you say helped care for Jason from his first being admitted to the hospital? Easily an army. I would say, I mean, at least 100 people, I would think. All the nurses, several times a day. All of the doctors. When Jason was in the ICU. Your cardiovascular services, and then you've got your pulmonologist. The nursing assistants. Physical, occupational, speech therapist. And then once Jason left the ICU. Dietitians that were able to adjust his diet and make sure that he was getting enough protein. and Housekeeping. Making sure that his room is decluttered so he can walk around. And, I mean, it just, it takes an actual village And I was just privileged to be a part of that. His survival story offered that huge team of people valuable insights about how to treat COVID-19. They tried so many things. What brought him back? The ECMO certainly kept him alive. And they do know that Jason's fitness helped save him. Very healthy guy, mountain biker, hiker, dirt biker, no pre-existing conditions, run half marathons, do Spartan races, stuff like that. And needless to say, I did not think this would impact me, <laughs> if at all, minimally. Dr. Forrester says that didn't stop Jason from catching COVID-19, but it helped him muster the strength to fight it off. His body had put up with so much, from the ventilator to the ECMO to lying in bed for weeks. Having someone who's fit makes a tremendous difference as to whether they'll survive that kind of insult. The day finally came when Jason had recovered enough to be released from the hospital. They initially said, hey, uh, a few folks want to say goodbye. It's a good story. We, a few of us want to say goodbye downstairs. You OK with that? I said, yeah, of course. Whatever you need. Jason was in a wheelchair being pushed by nurse Caroline Melton. And then when I popped out of that elevator and I rounded the corner. There was, geez, probably 40, 50 people there. You've probably seen these videos by now, but Jason hadn't. You can see Jason has on a green T-shirt that reads, Best Dad Ever. A nurse hands him some balloons. Hospital staff wearing blue scrubs wave and cheer. One carries a sign that reads, Survivor. 
you can't see Jason's face, he's wearing a mask, but you can see his eyes. Here's his medical team. Just tears and obvious gratitude. I mean, he's blowing kisses to all of our staff and clapping for them as they're clapping for him. And I mean, it was just absolutely breathtaking. I was a large ball of tears, but I mean, it was incredible. It was an amazing feeling to be filled with happy tears. He's not even on oxygen anymore. It's just a matter of rehabilitating his arms and legs, and he should be back to normal, as if in a year this never happened. It's a remarkable ability to heal and to reverse such extensive lung injury to the point where it's almost negligible. Yeah, that's so great. It's And that's so rare for us to send someone home home after being that ill. Dr. Jennifer Hanna, who treated Jason for the worst part of his illness, wasn't on duty the day he was released. At that point, the hospital was seeing one or two deaths every day from COVID-19. I watched the video of him leaving. You know, I was sitting with my husband and my kid in bed watching that on Facebook. And I was in tears watching him, you know, kiss his wife and hug her for the first time after weeks of being in the hospital. You know, it makes us feel like we're doing this for a reason. The staff really needs to see a win every now and then. Still, Hannah sees Jason's story as a warning of underestimating the disease. With things starting to open back up again, I'm not sure that really the curve has flattened the way people think it has. So I guess I worry a little bit that we're maybe jumping the gun and we're going to see another spike as things start opening back up, but that'll remain to be seen. On the day Jason was released, 36 people died, one of the deadliest days in Colorado so far. Since then, hundreds more have died, although fewer each week. Michelle hopes more families can have moments like she had when Jason got in the car outside the hospital and they drove away. It was awesome. Awesome to see him alive, breathing. And the first time that I was able to touch him in like 18 days, it was the best thing ever. I don't know how to explain it. I don't know that there's words to explain it, but... Very emotional, for sure. And that drive home was so, so real. Like, he wanted the window down, the wind going through his hair, and just to see everything, how green he felt like everything looked, and the sun on his face, you know, he was just taking it all in. I live life very full. I'm a very appreciative guy in general, but this is, this just compounded this thing a hundredfold. Like I, I just, life has a whole new meaning. Walking outside has a whole new meeting. Rolling down the window has a new meeting. It's, it's just appreciate, appreciate life. Appreciate the little things, appreciate your family. And that's what I got. Dozens of people had worked for weeks to save his life And now Jason Jahanian was heading home. I'm John Daly, CPR News.
And John, our health reporter, joins us now. Hi, John. Hi, Ryan. As the state and the country reopen, at least to some extent, you know, your story is such a stark reminder that anyone can become severely ill from this novel coronavirus. How are Jason and his family doing now? You know, they're doing really well. He says he has a couple of blood clots in his legs, which is expected. And Mm. he says it's not bothering him. And he's on blood thinners now. And Jason is back out exercising in some way every day. He says he recently went wakeboarding for his birthday. And he says he's now able to run straight for a 5K, which is like three miles. So I mean, really, it's a, it's a very impressive comeback. Indeed. Even as this state eases restrictions, wearing masks in public and hand washing remain important. Is is Jason rehabilitating at home, John? Has is, is he shared what's next for him? Exactly. He is rehabilitating at home. Uh, he's in IT sales, and he says he's returned to work from home, and, and that's uh, happened earlier than expected. Jason's wife is a nurse who has experience with infectious diseases. I mean, she was able to advocate for him, help make decisions, I suppose in a way that few people could. How, how important do you think that was? You know, I think it's critical, right? I mean, uh, having someone who can advocate for you if you're in the hospital is crucial, but think about it. If that person is a a medical provider themselves, I think that just gives you, you know, an added advantage. They understand what's happening. They can ask the right questions. They might know somebody uh, who works there, and, and, and in her case, she did. Uh, so for sure, I think it, I think it really does make a difference. Your story came together over the course of several months. It's clear that despite everything doctors know about COVID-19, there is still a lot they don't know. And as we heard with Jason's treatment, they're really forced to learn and adapt as they go. For sure. You know, Dr. Jennifer Hanna, who you heard in the story, she told me that they still don't know that much about COVID, that the of course, the first cases emerged in humans at the end of last year, and it really wasn't detected in Colorado until, uh, you know, just a, a few months ago. So uh, there's a lot of learning and adapting that they're uh, doing as they go along. It's a it's a very much a steep learning curve. I think Jason's case also shows that people respond differently to different treatments. And as promising as some treatments may be, Of course, there's still no cure for COVID-19. That's right. There's no cure. There's no vaccine yet. Doctors are trying a number of treatments, but it's kind of trial and error. There are a lot of experimental drugs that they're looking at, convalescent plasma, which we heard about in this story. Some of these things seem to be showing some promise. But, you know, it takes time to get proven treatments and for those things to be thoroughly researched. So it's a process. You focused on Jason's treatment and recovery, but I have to think at the same time, this team of doctors was balancing a number of additional patients at the same time, the nurses as well. How did that wear on them? You know, I think it does wear on them. It, 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 for one thing, it's a total readjustment, kind of a realignment of our healthcare system, first to respond huh. to all these cases and figure out how to best protect frontline healthcare workers. We've been hearing about the personal protective equipment, the masks, things like that. And then also remember that hospitals are starting to, to see a lot fewer other patients. And so that was having an impact. And But, you know, one other factor is that the, the mental health is challenging uh, for frontline workers, and uh, it, it, it's hard for it not to weigh on them. There's the finances of the hospital that are always an issue, too. 
Um, but, you know, one of the doctors who I think was here on your show has said, we're built for this. Uh, so it's a time of tremendous pressure and stress, but they're learning. There's a lot of camaraderie. I think they're feeling like there's a lot of positive energy that's coming out of this from the public. So uh, very much a mixed bag, I guess I'd say. You mentioned finances. I'm actually curious of the personal finances here. What about cost? Like, did did Jason's insurance cover his treatment? Is any of it considered experimental? Uh, a little bit unclear at this point, but we know that this kind of care doesn't come cheap. There was an analysis out of California about uh, uh, caring for COVID patients that found that an average hospital stay of 12 days would result in a $72,000 bill. But since a lot of patients are older, Medicare will cover a lot of those bills. Remember, in his case, there is uh, that treatment called ECMO. Yeah. Well, ECMO amplifies the cost. It's very expensive in part due to the labor involved. There's a lot of, of labor. Uh, you need to have somebody there who's monitoring for complications and blood clots and bleeding and infection and loss of blood to the limbs. So it's a very labor-intensive thing. So G- Jason's care included nearly three weeks in the hospital plus lengthy spans on the ventilator and on that ECMO machine. He told me that he estimates his care might have been $100,000 a day. He's not sure how much that will cost him. It's still unclear, really, whether insurance carriers and government health insurance programs will pay. They've said that they will. So it may not be that much for an individual patient. uh, But Folks, of course, are always worried about gaps and uh, that there could be surprise bills. So that, too, is up in the air. CPR health reporter John Daly with that special inside look at a medical team's fight against COVID-19. I'm Ryan Warner. This is CPR News. I had a bag of cocaine and a half a bottle of vodka. And up behind me pulls a Denver police officer and turns on the lights. These days, Paul Scudo is a leader in Denver's recovery community. But not very long ago, he was hooked on drugs and running from the law. No license, no registration, no insurance, and I'm a convicted felon for the possession of narcotics. How Paul Scudo came back from broken. Find the latest episode on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you listen. The protests over racism and police brutality are resulting in policy changes and name changes. Over the weekend, it was announced that Denver's Stapleton neighborhood would pursue a new identity. The development shares its name with a former mayor who was a KKK member. Meanwhile, a portion of Broadway between the state capitol and Civic Center Park was transformed and renamed Friday. CPR's Alexandra McMahon reports a mural painted directly on the street is the centerpiece. Denver artist Adri Norris, with the help of other artists of color and anyone in the community, spent hours in the hot sun painting. You've been out here since, like, what, 8 a.m.? Oh, no. Earlier than that? I came out here last night at 6 p.m., It took until 10 for the sun to come down so we could trace the letters on the road. We didn't finish doing that until 2 a.m. I went home, took a nap, came back out here, 6 a.m. Painted on the street are the words, Black Lives Matter. Remember this time. And there's added meaning in the small details, like white marks that you can see up close in the black and brown letters. Each individual mark is very purposeful and made specifically by an artist of color. So I asked all of my people to come together and take the white paint and basically in whatever way they saw fit to make their mark on how whiteness has encroached on their personhoods. You have footprints, you have handprints, 
paint has been splattered, paint has been rolled. We had a four-year-old making her marks as well because, you know, as young as she is, she's definitely had people touching her hair, her body, without her permission. Norris explains how those white marks represent people of color's experiences existing in white spaces. Within the context of us existing in white spaces, there are also the various ways in which whiteness encroaches upon our being, upon our lives, uh, in sometimes incredibly tangible ways, like what happened to George Floyd and to Breonna Taylor, and sometimes in those subtle everyday ways that go not only overlooked, but we feel gaslit by even mentioning that that is a thing that's even happened. We are told that we're being too sensitive, that surely it doesn't mean what we think it means. Dan Taylor is one of the folks who helped paint the mural. I'm an indigenous New Zealand, I'm Maori, and it's kind of a similar history, not necessarily with the slavery, but with colonizers coming, taking over, making our home theirs, saying that they own it, and then taking over in a way that, you know, uh, became what the world is today, really. Taylor used the white paint to create footprints in some of the letters. Because that represents where the colonizers or the white man has, um, you know, stepped on uh, the colored people and indigenous people of different places. The city of Denver asked Norris to design the mural. And then I transformed the idea because uh, they just wanted Black Lives Matter. And I felt that this was an opportunity, especially as a black woman in this city, to do something that was significantly more meaningful than just copying D.C. and putting a Colorado spin. So she added the words, remember this time, which not only points to the current protests and how COVID-19 disproportionately impacts black communities, but the words also serve as a reminder. This time, please, can we remember that this is a battle that we have not only fought before, but we've been fighting for the last 150 years. The mural is expected to last three to four weeks with wear and tear from traffic on Black Lives Matter Boulevard. I'm Alexandra McMahon, CPR News. Juneteenth takes on added meaning this year. The holiday marks the end of slavery and the start of Black independence in America after the Civil War. At a weekend parade in Denver, people talked about what makes this year's celebration different and why they felt compelled to come out even though they had to take precautions because of the pandemic. We're singers. Uh, (laughs) uh, We have a group called Spirit of Grace. We're kind of like Colorado's gospel group. Woke up this morning with my mind. It was day on freedom. I woke up this morning with my mind. It was day on freedom. We are uh, just using our voices to bring people together. You know what I'm saying? Nothing soothes the soul like music, and live music is something people are so desperate for right now. Well, this is my first time coming to a Juneteenth uh, parade. And, you know, time to go ahead and stand up for what is right for the country and for black individuals and everybody of color. For Divine Dynasty Dance Team, I come out literally every year. 
Right now we have both our majorette dance team out here and we also have our palms team out here. So we service ages 5 to 18. Our tinier ones are like most fierce. <laughs> it's funny. <laughs> like the little ones are unstoppable and the older ones are like all shy and it's harder to get the older ones out of their shell versus the little ones are just kind of like kind of cool for school. My name is Norman Harris. I've been involved since birth, but I've been organizing the celebration here in Denver for about the last, this will be the ninth year. Last year we probably had about 50,000 people come to Juneteenth over two or three, two days. Um, our parade normally kicks off the celebration. It's usually four or 5,000 people. So it might be a little bit less, but we didn't really advertise it. And we just kind of sent the, put the word out. This one, just because of recent events, is, is very, very different from previous Juneteenths and uh, a lot more impactful. I feel like there are a lot of, uh, not only a lot of first-timers here, but a lot of people just really interested in what this side of the community looks like and a lot of people really interested in, in supporting it and a lot of people really interested in breaking their, their comfort bubbles and coming out of their bubbles and crossing those comfort barriers and getting to know people that don't look like them and maybe people that don't have the exact same ideas as them. I'm so much of an optimist. This feels good. This feels great. There's um, folks here that I wouldn't normally see. Um, there's media coverage that we don't normally get. Um, we've been fighting for freedom uh, for Juneteenth here in Denver. It's over a 50-year celebration. It feels like a celebration, but um, it's more symbolic because of the fact that uh, the nation is in turmoil over what happened with the death of you know, a black male who was uh, needingly killed by the police when they knew that they were above and beyond their use of force model. It is a little different in the atmosphere this year because we do have a lot on our hearts that is heavy and obviously a lot of us are um, minorities so you know it impacts us a little bit differently in our families but that just adds more passion into it so this year honestly when we're coming out here it's it's always been for a big purpose but now we're you know it's just on our hearts and we're just going to dance it out in honor of that. Voices from the Juneteenth celebration in Denver Saturday in reverse order, Shay Williams, David Reardon, Norman Harris, and Kristen Grant. CPR's Andrea Dukakis and Rachel Estabrook put that together. And there are more Juneteenth events in Colorado later this week, including an online music festival Thursday and a celebration in Grand Junction Saturday. Juneteenth is officially commemorated June 19th. Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones is a woman history nearly forgot. She was the daughter of freed slaves, the first black graduate of what's now the University of Northern Colorado, and the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. Despite her remarkable life, she was buried in an unmarked grave. That did not sit well with Polly Bugros McLean, a professor at CU, who set out to write her biography. You spent years crisscrossing the country to learn everything you could about this woman who lived to 105. Why were you so captivated by Lucille? It started off with an article from a newspaper that said that a black woman who was educated, a daughter of the state of Colorado, was buried in an Omar grave, as you said. And I went, no, that's not correct in the, you know, as we're coming to the end of the 20th century. It has to be a mistake here. 
And that started me on on the quest. And the first thing I did was go to Fairmont Cemetery where she was buried. In Denver. In Denver. And looked her up and also looked up the fact that she had also bought in uh, 1955, she bought her tombstone. She bought a spot to be buried and uh, she bought her headstone, and that was destroyed, and she lost that. You know, two years before she died, they would sell her plot. And you wanted, really, to understand the yeah. story of her life, uh, not just her death, and um, the fact that she really was not well-known. She was not well-known, and that what happens uh, to history often is that we tend to focus on those who make the nightly news, those who have uh, who, who we don't tell the full story of those who are the bottom of the historical plane. And I wanted to resurrect her and bring her out. As I mentioned, there are a lot of firsts in Lucille's life. So the, this first generation born after slavery Again, the first black graduate of what's now UNC, the first black woman to graduate from CU Boulder. Now, she wanted to teach, but she could not land a teaching gig in Colorado after her graduation from what is now UNC. Why not? Well, one of the things is that you got a free education and you had to pay back. So immediately she wanted to get a job. And the only job that she apparently could apply for was in Maitland, Colorado. Maitland? Maitland, Colorado. Where is Mining that? town about 163 miles away from here. Okay. Uh, she applied. In fact, the Maitland newspaper ran an article in 1905 about this very intellectual and bright black student that graduated from, which is now UNC. The teacher's college. That's right. Would be applying for a job. Uh, but it never happened. And she didn't waste any time, and that was one of her characteristics. She didn't take no for an answer. So immediately she found a job at Arkansas Baptist College in Little Rock and ended up going there right after graduation. Is it that she just found it difficult as a black woman to find a teaching gig in Colorado? Yes, because we would not, uh, that, that was certainly a problem, even though we did have some black teachers before 1905. Huh. That was the the only community in Colorado, though, that would even think about offering her a job. Denver, for instance, would not. No, she could not get in anywhere else. And then they turned her down. They turned her down. Yeah. And then Colorado loses her for a time to Arkansas. For Yeah, they lose her for about 42 years. Now, at CU Boulder, later on, she apparently did not walk at graduation. Right. Why not? Uh, I interviewed... Um, one of her relatives that was still alive, and I was told that a young white female student came up to her and says, Hi, Lucy, here's your diploma. I'll be your stand-in. And um, she never walked. Do you think that was about race? Yeah, sure. <laughs> but it, it's hard to document some of this at this time other than the oral history that I've received from relatives about this. You never got to meet Lucille. She died in 1989. Right. And I'm always interested in the kind of relationship that develops between an author and the subject of a book who's deceased. I mean, how would you describe the connection that you feel to Lucille? Um, I think the, uh, the connection is that I see myself in Lucille with the issues that she faced. 
She faced issues of racism no matter what, wherever she traveled. Um, and that was back over 100 years ago. You know, and today some of those same issues arise with me. So there was that connection. We haven't gotten over racism in this country. It's still part of the American character. So I, I saw that. I saw the issues that she faced, you know, in schools in terms of being sexism that she faced as a woman and a black woman. So she was double jeopardy. And that indeed sort of made me think about myself a lot as I was going through this. As a woman of color. As a, a woman of color, yeah. On a college campus. Yeah. A final question. We have about 30 seconds remaining. Is Lucille Berkeley Buchanan Jones's grave at Denver's Fairmont Cemetery still unmarked? It's marked now with her name. Okay. Yes. Do you hope to have something more there at some point? Well, there are two other relatives in in that same spot that's unmarked. Something you'd like her to change, relatives, I imagine? Yeah. Yes, something I'd like to work on. That is Polly Bugros McLean from a conversation in November 2018. She's an associate professor of media studies at CU Boulder. Her book is Remembering Lucille, a Virginia family's rise from slavery and a legacy forged a mile high. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. <laughs>